Okay, uh, continuing on the broad theme of back to basics, um, Four Noble Truths. Um, just got a selection of readings today. Um, uh, maybe uh, reflecting a bit, um, centering around um, the kind of motivations, um, right view really, uh, uh, also uh, in the path of practice, because um, we often pick up, you know, particularly in the West, pick up a, a path of meditation practice. Um, that's what's taught and emphasized in uh, retreat centers and many of the teachings uh, as they've come to the West. Uh, meditation practice, emphasizing modes of practice. Um, but oftentimes, it seems like I think there's a, a paucity of references to uh, a context and a reason for picking it up. You know, I, the idea of uh, why are we doing this? Where are we going with it? What are the possibilities? Um, what's uh, not only our uh, motivation, um, but... Uh, a sense of a greater um, purpose for doing it uh, other than just picking up a practice of meditation. Um, so this is where it uh, harkens to right view and the Four Noble Truths especially. Um, and I kind of used as a, uh, a reflection and inspiration also uh, the Buddha's path uh, and what he was seeking and he wasn't just sitting down to learn how to meditate and, uh, you know, uh, because it seemed like a good idea. Um, and I think it's kind of uh, a number of the things that were motivations for him um, were uh, exemplified in the night of enlightenment uh, when he passed through three watches. It, most of you are probably familiar with that. Um, and the first two watches of the night were... Uh, very clearly, a very str very strong motivating, um, you know, emotionally in a, in, in a sense of the word, uh, mature sense of the word, emotionally very uh, moving um, reflections that he had in the first two watches of night to propel him into the third watch of the night where he uh, realized enlightenment. So uh, I think as most people are aware, the, the three watches of the night on the night of his enlightenment involved the, the first watch um, being uh, a reflection using his you know, very strong meditative powers uh, to see into his own personal narrative, his past lives, uh, and the, the enormity of the amount of suffering over incomprehensible periods of time being reborn over and over again in, in many different planes of existence uh, and seeing the, that, the enormity of, of that, you know, experience of since, uh, since you know, a, an undiscoverable beginning, really. Uh, and that, uh, moving into the second watch of the night where he um, reflected on the arising and passing of other beings. He was able to see the arising and passing of other beings uh, according to their kama. Uh, so the, the, essentially the uh, uh, reflection on rebirth in the first watch, the reflection on kama uh, in the second watch of the night were those uh, reflections that were very instrumental in his being able to then move into the third watch of the night where he was able to 
find the ending of the asava, the outflows, the tanks um, that resulted and culminated in his penetration, uh, perfect penetration of the Four Noble Truths and his release, uh, his full liberation. Um, so, you know, his initial motivation was um, a very strong understanding, essentially, of the first noble truth, uh, the first noble truth of there is suffering. Um, and then he had worked very hard in his cultivation uh, in the previous six years and uh, developing meditative skills uh, and uh, reflections and wisdom to help propel him with that motivation to end this mass of suffering um, into uh, using that motivation to uh, attain uh, full liberation. So I think for ourselves, most of us likely not being able to see into our past lives or uh, see the rising and passing of other beings, we need to have our own individual motivation that will uh, sustain us uh, along the path to, to realize the full potential. Um, and obviously, um, the, uh, our own uh, personal ways that we suffer are our, our primary motivation, uh, how we um, uh, pick up and hold the, our experience in a, in a way that just leads to this constant level of suffering. Um, and that's a very strong motivation that we use as our primary uh, motivation, but also to keep that broader view, uh, in a sense, a bit more of a cosmological view um, of the vastness uh, of the experience that we're talking about and also the incredible potential for um, a transcendent experience and understanding and a release uh, from that very suffering. So it brings us to right view, um, the first step of the Noble Eightfold Path, um, and uh, maybe spending some time with uh, spending some time with right view. I think that uh, my intention in the next couple of days, anyway, is to kind of go over some of the fundamentals of right view. Uh, we've all had lots of instructions and uh, investigations around techniques of meditation, and of course those will come up throughout the winter retreat and maybe you know, fairly soon as part of the Back to Basics. But I thought best to start with fleshing out a little bit more of the right view. Ajahn Yannicko mentioned it, uh, some uh, comments about right view in his last talk, and thought probably just to um, expand on those a little bit uh, today anyway, and uh, moving into tomorrow. But first I thought I'd start with a reading, um, some Sutta excerpts uh, uh, that kind of set the stage um, of, the, of a broad uh, reflection on the, the first noble truth. And this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi's In the Buddha's Words, his anthology. And this series of uh, short suttas are, are all found in the Sangyutta Nikaya section 15. This first one. Sanyutta Nikaya 15.1. The Blessed One said this, Monks, this sangsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Suppose, monks, a man would cut up whatever grass, sticks, branches, and foliage there are in this Jambudipa and collect them together into a single heap. Having done so, he would put them down, saying for each one, 
this is my mother, this is my mother's mother. The sequence of that man's mothers and grandmothers would not come to an end. Yet the grass, sticks, branches, and foliage in, just, in this Jambudipo would be used up and exhausted. For what reason? Because, monks, this sangsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. For such a long time, monks, you have experienced suffering, anguish, and disaster, and swelled the cemetery. It is enough to become disenchanted with all formations, enough to become dispassionate towards them, enough to be liberated from them. Next one. Monks, this sangsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, fettered by craving. Suppose, monks, a man would reduce this great earth to balls of clay the size of jujube kernels and put them down, saying for each one, this is my father, this is my father's father. The sequence of that man's fathers and grandfathers would not come to an end. Yet this great earth would be used up and exhausted for what reason? Because, monks, this sangsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. For such a long time, monks, you have experienced suffering, anguish, and disaster, and swelled the cemetery. It is enough to become disenchanted with all formations, enough to become dispassionate towards them, enough to be liberated from them. A certain monk approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side, and said to him, Venerable Sir, how long is an eon? An eon is long, monk. It is not easy to count it and say it is so many years, or so many hundreds of years, or so many thousands of years, or so many hundreds of thousands of years. Then is it possible to give a simile, venerable sir? It is possible, monk, the blessed one said. Suppose, monk, there was a great stone mountain, a yojana long, a yojana wide, and a yojana high, and a yojana high, without holes or crevices, one solid mass of rock. At the end of every hundred years, a man would stroke it once with a piece of fine cloth. That great stone mountain might by this effort be worn away and eliminated, but the eon would still not have come to an end. So long is an eon, monk. And of eons of such length, we have wandered through so many eons, so many hundreds of eons, so many thousands of eons, so many hundreds of thousands of eons. For what reason? Because, monk, this sangsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to be liberated from them. At Rajagaha in the bamboo grove, the squirrel sanctuary, a certain Brahmin approached the Blessed One and exchanged greetings with him. When they had concluded their greetings and cordial talk, he sat down to one side and asked him, Master Gotama, how many eons have elapsed and gone by? Brahman, many eons have elapsed and gone by. It is not easy to count them and say there are so many eons or so many hundreds of eons or so many thousands of eons or so many hundreds of thousands of eons. But is it possible to give a simile, simile Master Gotama? It is possible, Brahman, the Blessed One said. Imagine, Brahman, the grains of sand between the point where the river Ganges originates and the point where it enters the great ocean. It is not easy to count these and say there are so many grains of sand, or so many hundreds of grains, or many thousands of grains, or so many hundreds of thousands of grains. 
Brahmins, the eons that have elapsed and gone by, are even more numerous than that. It is not easy to count them and say that there are so many eons, so many hundreds of eons, so many thousands of eons, or so many hundreds of thousands of eons. For what reason? Because Brahman, this samsara, is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to be liberated from them. So there's some sobering descriptions of the length of samsara. Uh, the next reading is uh, uh, an essay from Bhikkhu Bodhi um, called Two Styles of Insight and Meditation, just to provide a little background about uh, the teachings from the Buddha and some of the ways uh, we're practicing these days, in modern Western society especially. I've uh, taken the liberty to do some uh, fairly intense editing here uh, so that some of the parts that are a bit uh, heavy on the philo philosophy, philosophical side of things, um, I'm kind of uh, eliminating to make it more understandable. Bhikkhu Bodhi is a wonderful resource. He also comes from a background of uh, philosophy, and it can get a bit hard to listen to. It's easier to read and, and contemplate than, than it is to listen, so somewhat edited version here. Today, the practice of insight meditation has gained global popularity, yet in achieving this success, it has undergone a subtle metamorphosis. Rather than being taught as an integral part of the Buddhist path, it is now presented as a secular discipline whose fruits pertain more to life within the world than to supramundane release. Many meditators testify to the tangible benefits they have gained from the practice of insight meditation, benefits that range from enhanced job performance and better relationships to deeper calm, more compassion, and greater awareness. However, while such benefits may certainly be worthwhile in their own right, taken by themselves, they are not the final goal that the Buddha himself holds up as the end point of his training. That goal, in the terminology of the texts, is the attainment of Nibbana, the destruction of all defilements here and now, and deliverance from the beginningless round of rebirths. Perhaps the most powerful pressure that has shaped the contemporary expression of insight meditation has been the need to transplant the practice into a largely secular environment, remote from traditional Buddhist faith and doctrine. Given the skeptical climate of our age, it is quite appropriate that newcomers to the Dhamma be invited to explore for themselves the potential inherent in the practice. Perhaps the last thing they need to have is to have the full agenda of Buddhist doctrine thrust upon them from the start. However, though we may initially take up meditation with an open and explorative mind, at a certain point in our practice, we inevitably arrive at a crossroads where we are faced with a choice. Either we can continue the meditation as a purely naturalistic, non-religious discipline, or we can transpose the practice back into its original setting of Buddhist faith and understanding. If we choose the first route, we might still deepen our meditation and reap more abundantly the same benefits we have obtained so far. Deeper calm, more equanimity, greater openness, even a kind of penetration of the here and now. Nevertheless, as desirable as these fruits might be in themselves, viewed against the Buddha's word, they remain incomplete. 
for the practice of insight meditation to achieve the full potential ascribed to it by the Buddha, it must be embraced by several other qualities that rivet it to the framework of the teaching. Foremost among such qualities is the complementary pair of faith and right view. As a factor of the Buddhist path, faith, sadha, does not mean blind belief, but a willingness to accept on, a, on trust certain propositions that we cannot, at our present stage of development, personally verify for ourselves. These propositions concern both the nature of reality and the higher reaches of the path. In the traditional map of the Buddhist training, faith is placed at the beginning as the prerequisite for the later stages comprised in the triad of virtue, concentration, and wisdom. The canonical states do not seem to envision the possibility that a person lacking faith in the tenets specific to the Dhamma could take up the practice of insight meditation and reap positive results. Yet today, such a phenomenon has been extremely widespread. It is quite common now for meditators to make their first contact with the Dhamma through intensive insight meditation and then to use this experience as a touchstone for assessing their relationship to the teaching. At this juncture, the choice they make divides meditators into two broad camps. One consists of those who focus exclusively on the tangible benefits the practice yields here and now, suspending all concern with what lies beyond the horizons of their own experience. The other consists of those who recognize the practice to flow from a fount of understanding far deeper and broader than their own. It is this decision that separates those who take up the practice of insight meditation as a purely naturalistic discipline from those who practice it within the framework of the Buddhist faith. The former, by suspending any judgment about the picture of the human condition imparted by the Buddha, limit the fruit of the practice to those that are compatible with a secular naturalistic worldview. The latter, by accepting the Buddha's own disclosure of the human condition, gain access to the goal that the Buddha himself holds up as the final aim of the practice. And I just uh, thought there that accepting the Buddha's own disclosure of the human condition is just, I think, exemplified by that reading I did before on the vastness of samsara and the number of lives, incomprehensible number of lives we've had, the suffering. The second pillar that supports the practice of insight and meditation is the counterpart of faith, namely right view, samaditi. Though the word view might suggest that the practitioner actually sees the principles considered to be right at the outset of the training, this is seldom the case. For all but a few exceptionally gifted disciples, right view initially means right belief, the acceptance of principles and doctrines out of confidence in the Buddha's enlightenment. Though Buddhist modernists sometimes claim that the Buddha said that one should believe only what one can verify for oneself, no such statement is found in the Pali Canon. What the Buddha does say is that one should not accept his teachings blindly, but should inquire into their meaning and attempt to realize their truth for oneself. Contrary to Buddhist modernism, there are many principles taught by the Buddha as essential to right understanding that we cannot, in our present state, see for ourselves. These are by no means negligible, 
for they define the framework of the Buddha's entire program of deliverance. Not only do they depict the deeper dimensions of the suffering from which we need release, but they point in the direction where true liberation lies and prescribe the steps that lead to realization of the goal. These principles include the tenets of both mundane and transcendent right view. Mundane right view is the type of correct understanding that leads to a fortunate destination within the round of rebirths. It involves an acceptance of the principles of kamma and its fruit, of the distinction between meritorious and evil actions, and of the vast expanse and multiple domains of samsara within which rebirth may occur. Transcendent right view is the view leading to liberation from samsara in its entirety. It entails understanding the Four Noble Truths in their deeper ramifications as offering not merely a diagnosis of psychological distress, but a description of samsaric bondage and a program for final release. It is the transcendent right view that comes at the head of the Noble Eightfold Path and steers the other seven factors towards the cessation of suffering. While the actual techniques for practicing insight meditation may be identical for those who pursue it as a purely naturalistic discipline and those who adopt it within the framework of the Dhamma, the two styles of practice will nevertheless differ profoundly with respect to the results those techniques can yield. When practiced against the background of a naturalistic understanding, insight meditation can bring greater calm, understanding, and equanimity, even experiences of insight. It can purify the mind of the coarser defilements and issue in a tranquil acceptance of life's vicissitudes. For these reasons, this mode of practice should not be disparaged. However, from a deeper point of view, this appropriation of Buddhist meditation remains incomplete. It is still confined to the sphere of conditioned existence, still tied to the cycle of kama and its fruit. When, however, Insight meditation is sustained from below by deep faith in the Buddha as the perfectly enlightened teacher and illuminated from above by the wisdom of the teaching. It acquires a new capacity that the other approach lacks. It now functions with the support of dispassion, moving towards ultimate deliverance. It becomes the key to open the doors to the deathless, the means to gain a freedom that can never be lost. With this, insight meditation transcends the limits of the conditioned, transcends even itself, to arrive at its proper goal, the eradication of all the fetters of existence and release from the beginningless round of birth, aging, and death. So that reading just to provide a bit of reflection, motivation for picking up the path in its entirety, taking it with the goal of complete liberation just popped into my mind as I was talking. I mentioned this fairly recently, um, but uh, reflecting again on that trip that uh, Lupa and uh, Tankantiko and Debbie took down to see Ruth Dennison on her uh, last few months of life and, and her admonition to them to not settle just for mere happiness, but to reflect and take the teaching as a whole and, and take it to its completion. For encouragement that we can all do that. Okay, another uh, reading snippet here on uh, uh, 
uh, a little bit about right view. Let's see. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi's The Four Noble Truths. And right view is the forerunner of the entire path, the guide for all the other factors. It enables us to understand our starting point, our destination, and the successive landmarks to pass as practice advances. To attempt to engage in the practice without a foundation of right view is to risk getting lost in the futility of undirected movement. Doing so might be compared to wanting to drive someplace without consulting a roadmap or listening to the suggestions of an experienced driver. One might get into the car and start to drive, but rather than approaching closer to one's destination, one is more likely to move farther from it. To arrive at the desired place, one has to have some idea of its general direction and the, of the roads leading to it. The Buddha himself says that he sees no single factor so responsible for the arising of unwholesome states of mind as wrong view, and no fa factor so helpful for the arising of wholesome states of mind as right view. Again, he says that there is no single factor so responsible for the suffering of living beings as wrong view, and no factor so potent in promoting the good of living beings as right view. In the fullest measure, right view involves a correct understanding of the entire Dhamma or teaching of the Buddha, and thus its scope is equal to the range of the Dhamma itself. The first aspect is mundane right view, right view which operates within the confines of the world. The other is the supermundane right view, the superior right view which leads to liberation from the world. Now to, to flesh that out a little bit, just a, a short reading um, describing the factors of um, right view. And this comes from Majima 117, uh, the sutta uh, called the Great Forty. And I'll just read, the, it's, a, it's a very uh, wonderful comprehensive uh, sutta that talks about uh, all the factors of the Eightfold Path being in concert with each other, in harmony with each other. But I'm just going to read the section that's the description of uh, what, what is right view. And first, it starts with what is wrong view. Uh, what bhikkhus is wrong view? There, and then, quote, there is nothing given, nothing offered, nothing sacrificed, no fruit or result of good and bad actions, no this world, no other world, no mother, no father, no beings who are reborn spontaneously. No good and virtuous recluses and Brahmins in the world who have realized for themselves by direct knowledge and declare this world and the other world. This is wrong view. And what because is right view that is affected by the taints partaking of merit ripening in the acquisitions? This refers to mundane right view. What is mundane right view? There is what is given and what is offered and what is sacrificed. There is fruit and result of good and bad actions. So the first bit, what is given, what is offered, what is sacrificed, is uh, referencing generosity. Uh, fruit and result of good and bad actions, the law of kama. There is this world and the other world, acknowledging that there are other planes of existence. There is mother and father, um, kind of a a little bit obscure reference. Some people say referencing the debt of gratitude uh, that we owe our parents, the enormity of their sacrifice to us, and that as a reflection. Others 
have commented that it's also referencing one of the natural laws of genetics, uh, that we have mother and father and the effects of, of that. There are beings who are reborn spontaneously, so talking about rebirth. There, in the, there are in the world good and virtuous recluses and Brahmins who have realized for themselves by direct knowledge and declare this world and the other world the potential for liberation. This is right view, affected by taints partaking of merit, ripening in the acquisitions. Mundane right view. And what bhikkhus is the right view that is noble, taintless, supramundane, a factor of the path? The wisdom, the faculty of wisdom, the power of wisdom, panya, the investigation of states enlightenment factor, the path factor of right view in one whose mind is noble, whose mind is taintless, who possesses the noble path and is developing the noble path. This is right view that is noble, taintless, supramundane, a factor of the path. And elsewhere, uh, transcendent or supramundane right view is also just described as deep, full penetration of the Four Noble Truths. So that's a summary of what right view is from the suttas, both levels of mundane and supramundane. So just one last reading, which I'm going to truncate a little bit because it's a little bit longer. Um, and I think probably won't go through the whole thing. That's from a very... Uh, good sutta also in the Majjhima Nikaya, number 60, Apanaka Sutta, the incontrovertible teaching. Um, the word apanaka, which he's translating here as incontrovertible, also sometimes is translating, um, translated as like a, always a good bet. Um, and uh, we oftentimes hear in our tradition in terms of the apanaka dhammas, uh, which are practices that uh, are recommended um, that are always a good bet. <laughs> um, but I won't uh, segue into that right now. It's, it's, it takes it, the word in, into a slightly different realm. So in this sutta, um, the Buddha's talking to uh, a group of uh, Brahmin householders uh, who um, uh, don't have a particular doctrine. So he, he goes through the whole sutta talking about different doctrines of the day that are held, doctrines of nihilism, doctrines of non-doing, non-causality, uh, that there are no immaterial realms, there is no cessation of being, um, that are held by various uh, sects of uh, religious practitioners at that time. Um, and he kind of goes to, uh, in a way, uh, offer a path of, of how to regard them uh, in a way that's... Uh, that is useful in the practice, when, even when one hasn't realized the fruits of the practice, when one hasn't been exposed to the, the Buddhist path and, and uh, the results, the possible results. So this one is just particularly on the doctrine of nihilism, but the same pattern applies when he talks about all the other ones. Householders, there are some recluses and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is thus, is this, there is nothing given, nothing offered, nothing sacrificed, no fruit or result of good and bad actions, no this world, no other world, no mother, no father, no beings who are reborn spontaneously, no good and virtuous recluses and Brahmins in the world who have themselves realized by direct knowledge and declare this world and the other world. Let's see. Um, I'm going to edit this a little bit. Um, so now, householders, of those recluses and Brahmins who, whose doctrine and view is just what I said, 
Uh, it is to be expected that they will avoid three wholesome states, namely good bodily contact, good verbal conduct, and good mental contact, and that they will undertake and practice these three unwholesome states. Why is that? Because these good recluses and Brahmins do not see in the unwholesome states the danger, degradation, and defilement, nor do they see in wholesome states the blessing of renunciation, the aspect of cleansing. Since there actually is another world, and this is you know, one instance where the Buddha categorically states this, and this is right view is one of his categorical statements, you know, not just an investigative statement. Since there actually is another world, one who holds the view there is no other world has wrong view. Since there actually is another world, one who intends there is no other world has wrong intention. Since there actually is another world, one who makes the statement there is no other world has wrong speech. Since there actually is another world, one who says there is no other world is opposed to those arahants who know the other world, etc., uh, etc. Et this wrong view, wrong intention, wrong speech, opposition to noble ones, convincing another to accept an untrue dhamma, and self-praise and disparagement of others, those several unwholesome these several unwholesome states thus come into being with wrong view as their condition. And then he describes the destination. If, there is no, if the person considers this, uh, if there is no other world, then on the dissolution of the body, this good person will have made himself safe enough. But if there is another world, then on the dissolution of the body, after death, he will reappear, reappear in a state of deprivation, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. Now whether or not the word of those good recluses and Brahmins is true, let me assume that there is no other world. Still, this good person is here and now censured by the wise as an immoral person, one of wrong view, who holds the doctrine of nihilism. But on the other hand, if there is another world, then this good person has made an unlucky throw on both counts, since he is censured by the wise here and now, and since on the dissolution of the body after death, he will reappear, reappear in a state of deprivation, etc. Then he goes through the same kind of formula, but with right view, uh, as one who holds right view, view and that one who expects, uh, one who holds right view is expected that um, they uh, will hold, uh, uh, they will live with wholesome states, namely uh, bodily, uh, good bodily contact, good verbal contact, and good mental contact. And then he goes through that same argument and argues that that person who does hold that view, even if they haven't experienced, uh, even if they don't know for sure themselves, they have made a lucky throw on both counts in that they will experience, uh, 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 they will experience the benefits of, of uh, moral conduct and moral thought, both in this lifetime, and then if there is another lifetime, uh, then they will uh, attain a happy destination. This is somebody who has um, uh, 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 thrown a lucky throw, as they will say. It's uh, uh, um, uh, always a good bet. Uh, they will uh, receive the benefits of that view. Uh, even if it's not personally verified, they will receive a, uh, benefits of that view, both in the here and now and in the future if there is another rebirth.
I recommend that for uh, people who want to explore that further. It's uh, explained much more in detail in that sutta. So I think I'll leave it there for the readings today and just see if there's anybody who has any uh, comments or questions. Ajahn, uh, oh, very simple. Just if you could uh, mention which suttas you, you read from today. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll repeat it. I yes, it yes. Um, uh, that last one was uh, number 60, Majjhima Nikaya. Um, uh, the one before it from the Great Forty, uh, Majjhima 117. And then a series of Sangsara, the Sangsara ones from the Sangita Nikaya, section 15, I believe. Um, and it started with number one in that section, Sangita Nikaya 15 without discoverable beginnings. Just a, a comment. I really like that. Uh, the Great Forty. Mm. He, he talks about the three that circle each other. Yeah, and, yeah. In, in between, kind of, it goes back to that. The uh, right view, <coughs> right life, right mindfulness, being able to direct it to any... Right. Yeah. The greater the greater context of that that little snippet that I, I read out on on right view just to give the description. But yeah, that that whole sutta, the Great Forty, um, is you know an exposition on uh, you know essentially what is the the samma in all of the uh, samaditi samma sankapo sampa you know sankap uh, samma vayamo all the all the right uh, parts of it meaning right meaning with uh, in relation to true, true in relationship to each other, in harmony with each other, and that they all revolve in different ways, particularly those three that you just mentioned. But right view uh, always being at the head, you know, that we can't, we can't, and that's kind of the thrust of what I was trying to explain with these readings is, is that we can't really full, fully realize the, the path of practice just through a system of meditation. Um, that we have to have a context, we have to know. We have to have a motivation uh, and a clear motivation and a sustained motivation. I, you know, I once asked a um, a senior monk um, a number of years ago if if they thought that a person could realize stream entry um, without you know a sense or without a, a strong appreciation of karma and rebirth. Um, is there enough motivation to see through? To, to a deep insight that puts one, uh, you know, uh, on the path with assurance. And he said he didn't think that that was possible. Um, that, you know, just as Bhikkhu Bodhi said in his essay, it doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of wonderful benefits and even some levels of insight that can come without a, a reflective, even if we don't know for ourselves, a reflective acceptance of kama and rebirth especially. Um, that uh, there are many benefits that can come from that, um, but that it can't ever result in a, you know, a realization of uh, a deep insight that locks one onto the path because it doesn't have that fundamental right view of the vastness of samsara uh, and that there is a potential for release. But also the other aspect of right view, you know, with the sense that there is a release from it, there is a destination um, that is possible, and that's complete liberation. And you know, the book, the island, uh, Lumpar Passano and, and uh, 
Ajinomaro uh, compiled, you know, really points to that uh, over and over again. And Ajampasana's quote that from uh, <laughs> Yogi Berra, if you, if you, uh, uh, if you don't know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. So I just bring this up for reflection um, to uh, people to, you know, if you're finding a loss of motivation or loss of inspiration sometimes, um, you know, what's the point, where's it all going, you know, the meditation may not be going well. Just to go back to right view, uh, in, you know, remembering the initial motivations and reflecting on even if you don't know for yourself um, you know, the vast experience that the Buddha was able to tap into on the night of his enlightenment, but to reflect on that, that he was able to do that. And if you have faith that the Buddha's not telling us one big lie <laughs> just for his own benefit, then, um, which, you know, I think probably most of us would call into question if we had that view. But yeah, but just to reflect that, okay, well, maybe I don't know for myself, but boy, you know, I don't want to take the chance. <laughs> um, and uh, that really there is no other path better than uh, this one to do that. And if, even if for some reason it's all a big misunderstanding, you know, we've done the best we can in this lifetime um, to realize a, a form of happiness that uh, transcends the, the worldly happiness that we're mostly used to seeking. <laughs>